Hello, welcome to the Revive for the Journey podcast, where we give you this week's message from Cove Church. We pray that it blesses you and helps you grow deeper in your journey with Christ. Enjoy. Well, hey there, Cove Church. Uh, my name is Brandon. If we've not met, if this is your first time, you know, uh, joining us, so glad that you're here. Welcome. If you're back a second time, welcome back. Uh, today, I, I want to take us to one of the most dramatic stories, one of the most dramatic scenes in all of the Bible. In fact, I might contend uh, that this is going to follow um, closely behind stories like, you know, God speaking life into all creation, uh, maybe even the resurrection. Uh, Pastor Brandon, you're being hyperbolic. I don't know. We'll read it and, uh, and you decide. We're going to read two stories back to back because that's really how they're situated uh, in scripture. And I believe that they're recorded that way in scripture on, on purpose. The stories are recorded in Mark chapter 9, Luke chapter 9, and Matthew 17. We'll read the stories from Mark chapter 9 today, and we're going to read from the Passion Translation. Uh, fair warning, Cove Church, not a ton of story, not a ton of metaphor, and it isn't because I don't like the metaphor or like the story. Uh, it can help us uh, really record and make a connection with powerful truths that the Spirit of God is trying to speak to our hearts. But sometimes the text itself is the story. The text itself is the illustration. It's full, uh, full of metaphor, symbolism, enough for us to chew on, and I believe that that is our text uh, today. So we're in week two of our Lent series. Last week, almsgiving, kind of studying at least these first three weeks of Lent, the three pillars of Lent, almsgiving, fasting, and prayer. So almsgiving last week, uh, fasting this week, and then with Pastor Aaron, prayer next week. Dan Allender said this, theologian and psychologist, he said, fasting from any nourishment, activity, involvement, or pursuit for any reason sets the stage for God to appear. Fasting is not a tool to pry wisdom out of God's hands or to force needed insight about a decision. Fasting is not a tool for gaining discipline or developing piety, whatever that might be, he says. Instead, fasting is the bulimic act of ridding ourselves of our fullness to attune our senses to the mysteries that swirl in and around us. The commentator Matthew Henry said this, fasting is a laudable practice and we have reason to lament that it is generally neglected among Christians. Similarly, Martin Lloyd-Jones said this, I wonder whether we have ever fasted. I wonder whether it has even occurred to us that we ought to be considering the question of fasting. The fact is that this whole subject seems to have dropped right out of our lives and right out of our whole Christian thinking. Whether you realize this or not, fasting was an, ex, uh, an expected discipline both in the Old Testament and in the New Testament eras. Ezra was about to lead the exiles back to Jerusalem after the Persian captivity, some 900 miles. And what Ezra did there is he called this time of prayer and fasting, asking for God's protection and help along the way. Without a military, you can understand that they, they, were, they were vulnerable. And the Bible says in Ezra 8.23, so we fasted and petitioned our God about this and he answered our prayer. Fasting is a way to humble ourselves before God. Same text, Ezra 8.21. Fasting enables the Holy Spirit to reveal our true spiritual condition resulting in brokenness, repentance, and a transformed life. We see this in Psalm 51, at least with David, as he, as he repented of sinning against God and Bathsheba and, and the murder of Uriah. 
He fasted and prayed. Fasting and prayer opens our hearts and minds to receive wisdom and guidance from God. Uh, Ezra chapter 8, Acts 13 too. I love this, this, this uh, text in Acts 13. This is the sending of Barnabas and Saul. The Bible says that the early church leaders, they fasted and prayed and then the Holy Spirit spoke up. The Holy Spirit spoke and said, I want you to set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work of the gospel. Fasting and prayer is a way that we minister to honor and worship God. I love this. Another one of my heroes in scripture, uh, the prophetess Anna in Luke chapter two. The Bible says that she was a widow. She was, she was elderly. Uh, in fact, I think the Bible says that she was married for about seven years and then was widowed into an advanced age. And the Bible says she did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. Church, you know what one of her um, gifts was, among many, I'm sure, is that she got to see the Lord's Christ, the Messiah, little Jesus, as his parents brought him and dedicated him to the Lord. Fasting can result in a dynamic personal revival in your own life and help make you a channel for revival in someone else's life. Take a look at Isaiah chapter 58. God uses fasting and prayer to supernaturally protect his people. Again, Ezra chapter eight, but also Esther chapter four. Esther called a national time of fasting and prayer. Her people were about to be slaughtered. God heard that prayer and delivered his people. God uses fasting and prayer to call out, commission, empower spiritual leaders in the church. Acts 13, again in Acts 14. Jesus, Moses, and Elijah all fasted for 40 days. Daniel fasted for 21 days. Peter fasted for three days and many others. The early church fathers like Jerome and Athanasius and Clement of Rome and John Chrysostom practiced fasting, some one day a week, some twice a week, some whole weeks, even entire months. Martin Luther was criticized for fasting too much. John Wesley was known to withhold uh, ordination of Methodist pastors for those who wouldn't commit to fasting at least once a week. He himself fasted twice a week. During the 16th century, the Scottish pastor John Knox fasted and prayed and the wicked Mary, Queen of Scots, says she feared no weapon (laughs) like she feared John Knox's prayers. I love that. So let's go to our text today. Mark chapter nine, verses one through 29. It's a lengthy text this time, Cove Church, but I think it's worth it. Why don't you follow along? I'm reading from the the Passion Translation. Jesus said to them, I tell you the truth, there are some standing here now who won't experience death until they see the kingdom realm manifest with power. After six days, Jesus took Peter and the two brothers, James and John, and hiked up a mountain to be alone. And Jesus's appearance was dramatically altered for he was transfigured before their very eyes. His clothing sparkled and became glistening white, whiter than any bleach in the world could make them. Then suddenly, right in front of them, Moses and Elijah appeared, and they spoke with Jesus. Peter blurted out, good teacher, this is so amazing to see the three of you together. Why don't we stay here and set up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses and one for Elijah? Look at verse six in parentheses. We'll come back to it. For all the disciples were in total fear and Peter didn't have a clue what to say. Just then a radiant cloud began to spread over them, enveloping them all. And God's voice suddenly spoke from the cloud saying, this is my beloved son and you need to always listen to him. Then suddenly as they looked around, they saw only Jesus with them. 
for Moses and Elijah had faded away. Verse 9, and they all hiked down the mountain together. Jesus ordered them, don't tell anyone of what you just witnessed. Wait until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. So they kept it to themselves, puzzled over what Jesus meant about rising from the dead. Then they asked him, why do the religious scholars insist that Elijah must come before the Messiah? And he answered them, they're right. Elijah must come first to put everything in order. And what about all that is written about the Son of Man? Is it true that he must endure many sufferings and be rejected? So Elijah has already appeared just as it was prophesied. And they did to him whatever they pleased. Then we go down the mountain. Take a look at verse 14. Now, when Jesus came down the mountain to the other nine disciples, uh, they noticed a large crowd of people gathered around them with the religious scholars arguing with them. The crowd was astonished to see Jesus himself walking toward them. So they immediately ran to welcome him. What are you arguing about with these, with the religious scholars? He asked them. A man spoke out of the crowd. Teacher, he said, I have a son possessed by a demon that makes him mute. I brought him here to you, Jesus. Whenever the demon takes control of him, it knocks him down. He foams at the mouth and gnashes his teeth and his body becomes stiff as a board. I brought him to your disciples, hoping they could deliver him, but they were not able to do it. Jesus said to the crowd, why are you such a faithless people? How much longer must I remain with you and put up with your unbelief? Now bring the boy to me. So they brought him to Jesus. As soon as the demon saw him, it threw the boy into convulsions. He fell on the ground, rolling around and foaming at the mouth. Jesus turned to the father and asked, how long has your son been tormented like this? Since childhood, he replied. It tries over and over to kill him by throwing him into the fire or into the water. But please, if you're able to do something, anything, have compassion on us and help us. Jesus said to him, what do you mean if? If you're able to believe, all things are possible to the believer. When he heard this, the boy's father cried out with tears saying, I do believe, Lord, help my little faith. Now, when Jesus saw the crowd, when he saw the crowd was quickly growing larger, he commanded the demon saying, deaf and mute spirit, I command you to come out of him and never enter him again. The demon shrieked and threw the boy into terrible seizures and finally came out of him. As the boy lay there, looking like a corpse, everyone thought he was dead. But Jesus stooped down, gently took his hand, and raised him up to his feet. And he stood there completely set free. Afterwards, when Jesus arrived at the house, his disciples asked him in private, why couldn't we cast out the demon? He answered them, this type of powerful spirit can only be cast out by fasting and prayer. Cove Church, we go from the mountain to the valley. We go from the angelic to the demonic. We go from the glory of God's presence to the horrors of hell. We go from being speechless in awe and wonder of God's glory to being stuck and sickened by the grotesqueness of Satan. This transition from not knowing what to do or say to Christ's instruction to fast and pray. I know it rhymes. I know it's cute, but maybe it'll, maybe it'll stick, Cove Church. The contrast could not be more stark. And I'm so glad that these back-to-back -back stories are in Scripture. 
I think it's noteworthy, by the way. Jesus, if we go to the Mount of Transfiguration, uh, while they're up on the mountain, he takes Peter, James, and John, kind of his inner circle. He goes up on the mountain, leaves the other nine down kind of in the valley. And the Bible says that he's transfigured before them. Something changes. He, he, like his earthly body turns into some form of a heavenly body. Mark, trying to find words for this, he begins to describe that, that the white that they saw was like whiter than snow, one, one of the versions it says, or whiter than any launderer could get the clothes. We might say today, there's not enough bleach in the world to get the, the, the white that we saw as we looked at Jesus. And if that wasn't enough, two guys who had been dead for about 1,400 and 900 years respectively, Moses and Elijah suddenly appear before them. Now we have kind of the 40 club. All three of these gents had fasted 40 days. Why Moses and Elijah? Well, I think several reasons, not the least of which is they represent the law, Moses and the prophets, Elijah. Jesus came to fulfill in his ministry both the law and what was prophesied about him through the prophets. It was so stunning that Peter had no idea what to say. Again, many of your translations have this in parentheses. The writer, Mark here, essentially is saying this. I'm just telling you, Peter had no idea what to say. And so what is the wisdom that came falling out of Peter's mouth? He said, listen, Jesus, let, let's just stay right here and make a couple of kind of tiki huts for, for you and Moses and Elijah, as if a little hut is gonna contain the power of God the living God, as if Moses and Elijah need kind of protection from the elements in their glorified bodies. Really what was happening, Cove Church, is that what was coming out of Peter's heart is he wanted to memorialize what was happening. He was having a mountaintop experience. It was glorious. He was in the presence of God. He knew that heaven had bent low and he was part of it and he wanted to stay there. He wanted to remember this time, can we blame him for that? What's interesting, Cove Church, is this is not where we live life. We don't live, we need mountaintop experiences, but this is not where we stay. Neither do we stay in the valley. Life is generally lived on the plain, but we learn things on the mountain and we learn things in the valley that help us live out our faith on the plain. Let's go down to the valley. They come back down the mountain and this argument is transpiring between the other nine who stayed at the bottom and some of the religious scholars and uh, the religious leaders of the day. And this crowd comes with their popcorn and their iPhones to kind of get in on the action and record what's happening. And Jesus, I, I just see Jesus kind of scratching his head. It's like, I leave for an hour <laughs> and the whole place falls apart. What are you arguing about? Finally, this desperate voice rises over the top from a father and he says, Jesus, this argument is about my son. I actually brought my son to you, but I got stuck with the B team. I asked them to cast out this demon. They couldn't do it. He's demon possessed. And this demon seizes him. It makes him deaf and mute. It throws him on the ground. The Bible says that this demon actually, while all of this conversation is going on, this demon sees Jesus. 
And the Bible says that the demon began to act out just like the father was saying. It seizes, it seized him. It threw him on the ground. He starts rolling around on the ground and foaming at the mouth. This is like from the exorcist. I'm, I'm waiting for, you know, we're waiting for the little boy's head to kind of pop off and spin around. But I love Jesus. I, I, I want you to think, Co-Church, this scene, this scene. This demon is shrieking. There's a crowd. The dejected disciples, the nine disciples who couldn't cast out the demon, the three who are still basking in the glory of what they saw on the top of the mountain, this desperate father, and this boy writhing on the ground, foaming at the mouth. The disruption from this demon to attempt to steal, kill, destroy the rebellion, kind of the joining of the crowd, if you will, to create an uproar. Co-church, I haven't been around a ton of demonic deliverances, but I have been around a few. And I've shared a few of them at different points in time, you know, as, as I've shared and as I've preached. The, the, a couple as I studied this text that came to mind. Um, both young men, one a high schooler, one probably in his mid-20s. And uh, one at a men's retreat, one at, a, at a, um, a student camp, a summer camp. And when the Spirit of God, the anointing of God, decided to deliver each of these young men, those demonic spirits acted very much like the spirit in Mark chapter nine. Disruptive, intimidating, loud. An attempt to bring hopelessness. They threw both, they shrieked. They threw both of these young men on the ground. They started flopping around, rolling around. Hopelessness, confusion. Man, my, my, my son has been this way all of his life. Man, we couldn't cast out that demon. Man, that's intimidating. Man, that's scary. But I love Jesus, Cove Church. Every time I read this story, I just see Jesus kind of putting his hands in his, in his pockets, dismissing the disruption and the intimidation and the rebellion of the demon altogether. And he leans over to the dad and says, how long has your son been like this? <laughs> and the dad says, all, all of his life. And then the dad says this, teacher, rabbi, Jesus, if you can, please help. To which Jesus says, what do you mean if, if I can? And he puts it back on the dad in this gentle, loving way. And he says, listen, if you believe, anything is possible to the one who believes. And then we have Cove Church, one of the most amazing, heart-wrenching, relatable confessions in all of the Bible from this dad. I love it. He says, Lord, I believe in tears. Help my unbelief. Notice, Cove Church, that God doesn't call us to perfect faith or a life devoid of doubt. Rather, Scripture decide, uh, describes even a faith as tiny as a little mustard seed. I love that Jesus does not turn this dad away. I love that Jesus doesn't reprimand this dad. I love that Jesus follows through on this little bit of broken faith and he heals this dad's son. Sometimes we find ourselves in the valley and all we have, Cove Church, is just a little bit of faith. We're at the end of our rope and I want you to hear, hear these words. God knows it. God understands and he doesn't turn you away. The mighty hand of God is not dependent on the mighty faith of humankind. Jesus then rebukes the demon 
and the boy's healed. He's set free. The epilogue to the story, Cove Church, is the crowd dissipates. It's amazing. And they get back to the house and, um, you know, Peter, James, and John are still thinking about, you know, tiki huts up on the mountain. But the other nine, they're curious. And they ask Jesus, they lean in, lean in, they ask Jesus, why couldn't we cast out this demon? It's a great question, Cove Church, because we, we know from biblical texts that they had already been commissioned by God to heal the sick, raise the dead, and cast out demons, all of which they had done. They came back rejoicing. They told Jesus, even the demons are subject to us in your name. But we couldn't cast this one out. And Jesus drops this bomb on them. He says, this kind only comes out, that, that word only comes out, is forced out or driven out in the original language with prayer and fasting. Go church, you can read all the commentaries you want on Luke 9, uh, Mark 9, our text here, Matthew 17, and none, there, there's not one theologian worth their salt that is able to understand why this particular demon, why this particular situation, the disciples were unable to break through. If Jesus wanted us to know, he would have allowed it to be detailed in scripture. What he did want us to know is the secret sauce, if you will, for the breakthrough. And that is prayer coupled with fasting. So our big idea today, Cove Church, is this fasting is prescribed, paired practiced and powerful. If you needed an alliteration, I don't use them much, but you just got that in spades. So here we go quickly. Fasting is prescribed. Jesus prescribed something for this particular breakthrough. It was fasting coupled with prayer. We, we've already read in weeks prior, building up to Lent, Matthew chapter six, the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, when you give to the poor, almsgiving, when you fast and when you pray. In other words, this is what we do. This, this is the life of the Christ follower. Oh, Pastor Brandon, fasting is, is not really my thing. It's not really for me. No, no. Cultures, we, we don't get to say, that would, be, that would be similar to saying, listen, I love swimming, but water is just not my thing. Cove Church, this is what we do. It's prescribed throughout scripture, Old Testament and New Testament. Number one. Number two, fasting is paired. Notice that Jesus takes prayer that the disciples assuredly had used before when they cast out demons, when they tried to cast out this demon, uh, th th this young boy. They knew how to pray, but Jesus pairs it with fasting. I want us to understand, Cove Church, that this pairing of fasting and prayer is a lethal combination. In fact, fasting without prayer really is just a diet. But as we go to fast and we turn our hearts to Jesus in prayer, which is what Pastor Aaron is going to walk us through next week, it is a lethal pairing. John, Don Whitney said this. He's a professor of biblical spirituality. He said, the Bible does not teach that fasting is a kind of spiritual hunger strike that compels God to do our bidding. If we ask for something in prayer, that is, outside of God's will, fasting does not cause him to reconsider. Fasting does not change God's hearing so much as it changes our praying. Go church, you, you want to energize your prayer life. Turn your prayer life up to 11. Pair it with fasting. That's number two. Number three, fasting is practice. Don't miss this, Cove Church. I want us to see the development, the journey of the disciples. Jesus graciously layers onto their discipleship. He says, listen, we're going to add 
fasting to prayer. I know that you've, you've, you've prayed before, you've cast out demons before. You, you, you ran into a roadblock here. We're going to get back on the saddle. What we're going to layer in, what we're going to begin to practice is fasting. The Apostle Paul in Philippians 4.19 said this. Excuse me, Philippians 4.9. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things. And the God of peace will be with you. We know quite a bit about the Apostle Paul's example for um, Christ followers, you know, his disciples, including the fact that he fasted seven days, 10 days, and 14 days at least. We know this in Scripture. Practice. And finally, fasting is powerful. I want us to see the power that was released. What the disciples could not drive out, Jesus drove out in a few words. Cove Church. Um, the temptation of Jesus. Uh, I, I don't know if you've seen this before in scripture, um, but, but when Jesus went into the desert and fasted for 40 days and was tempted by the enemy, the bookends to that are this. The Bible says that Jesus went into the desert filled with the spirit of God and he came out in the power of the spirit of God. When we fast, there's a power released in the kingdom of God. There's something unleashed in, in the kingdom. It's a lethal tool for breakthrough in the Christ follower's life. Cove Church, same God on the mountain as in the valley. A loving God who knows what it's like in the valley that sometimes we simply offer up our five loaves and our two fish and we ask him to do the miracle. God understands that we, we all, from time to time, multiple times in our life, we will be desperate like this father, like this boy in the valley. What's interesting is if you go to this same story in Luke chapter nine, the end of the story after Jesus delivers this young boy and heals him and stands him up, the Bible says this, and all were astonished at the majesty of God. Cove Church, not only do we see the majesty and splendor of God on the mountain, but we see the majesty and splendor of God in the horrors of hell, in the valley. And what levels the playing field, Cove Church? What is the key for the padlock in the valley? It's prayer and fasting. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you. Thank you for this, I guess this this practical discipline that we can apply in our lives, and yet we also recognize that there, there's a mystery behind it. Why fasting? Yeah, you know, we could theorize about the denial of the flesh. Yes, this idea of giving up something physical and turning our hearts to you. This, this, this um, you know, hunger and thirst spiritually for you. What we do see, Jesus, in the mystery throughout scripture is that there is something powerful released and unleashed in the kingdom of God, a, 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 a powerful anointing for breakthrough when we pray and we fast. God, would you help us? God, would you give us the grace, not just to fast during Lent, not just to fast here and there, but to make it a lifestyle. In Jesus' mighty name.
Amen. Cove Church, as you uh, head out today, just like uh, last week we had a um, an almsgiving kind of fresh sheet or a guide for you, just some creative ways to engage almsgiving during the Lenten season. We also have um, a fasting guide for you. Uh, descriptive, not prescriptive. We're not saying this is what you need to do. Just some, just some thoughts and some considerations as you engage fasting throughout Lent. Bless you. Have a great week. Thanks for joining us. We hope you enjoyed this week's message. To stay connected with all things Cove Church, visit our website, covechurchpnw.com or on all social media platforms at Cove Church PNW. We'll see you next time.